0: Welcome, everyone. I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to the support of Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobook selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I often use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a cran eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is either a book I personally read or listened to through Audible. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless if you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a pretty good deal. So visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Stay tuned after the show where I will give you my audiobook recommendation. My second announcement is Patreon. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. We also have an event coming up in February, honoring the 76th anniversary of Iwo Jima. Details are currently on Patreon, and I'll post this on social media as we get closer. But holy crap, if there is one historical monument to support, this is it. This monument was built for Iwo Jima survivors by Iwo Jima survivors. Visit patreon.com marinehistory to look at our Patreon page. I'll include a link in the podcast description as well. Thanks for your time, and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 56 of History of the Marine Corps, the end of the Seminole Wars. Last week's episode discussed Archibald Henderson and the Marines' involvement in Florida. We reviewed Henderson's decision to include the Marines, President Andrew Jackson's decision to bring in the Marines, and a couple of actual battles between the Marines and the Seminoles. This episode sums up the Seminole Wars. We look at the U.S. Navy and Marines' efforts in the Everglades against the remaining Seminoles, dive into a high-level review of the Native American wars, and provide a few statistics about the war. We end the episode by heading out west and discuss the struggle between Texas, local Native American tribes, and Mexico. The conflict of these three nations would lead to Texas earning its independence from Mexico and eventually joining the United States. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. With most of the Seminole force defeated, the remaining men and women who resisted U.S. control headed into the Everglades. The United States Army didn't consider the advantage of naval forces during this campaign until Native Americans migrated to the wetlands. The Everglades introduced riverine warfare to the army, something the U.S. Navy and Marines were familiar with during the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and a few other skirmishes during the nation's existence. The Everglades was unique in that most of the territory was unexplored, and the location of where the Seminoles were hiding could only be reached by smaller boats. In 1836, every Marine assigned to the Seminole War, except for the St. Louis Detachment, boarded boats and embarked on seeking out 200 Native Americans hiding around the Cape Florida or New River area. On March 17, 1836, Marines and seamen from the U.S. sloop Vandalia Participated in an 11 day boat expedition up the Manatee River and around the Keys of Tampa Bay. Three days after they returned, they immediately proceeded from Tampa Bay to Charlotte Harbor, where they joined Army troops in a month long expedition up the Mayaca River. Throughout 1836, Marines and sailors headed into the vast subtropical wilderness and attempted to track down Seminoles, but it was challenging. It was a massive territory to cover, and the wildlife in the area could be dangerous. In September 1837, Navy Lieutenant Levin M. Powell wrote to the Secretary of War and volunteered to lead an expedition into the Everglades. This proposal was so impressive that Secretary Joel R. Poinsett invited him to Washington to present his plan in person. His presentation was called Project of an Expedition to the Everglades of South Florida. His strategy was similar to seek and destroy, a term that wouldn't be coined until the Vietnam War. His proposal stated, quote, It is proposed to circumnavigate the Everglades, discover the aforesaid retreats, to endeavor to capture the women and children, to fall upon the war parties, and to harass and terrify the nation. By this unexpected inroad from this quarter. Unquote. Powell and his fleet conducted multiple patrols, but by 1838, many of his men had scurvy, and the number of Native Americans captured during his expedition didn't come to fruition as outlined in his plan to Washington. He considered the expedition a failure, but it did emphasize the importance and potential benefits of riverine warfare. This realization, Resulted in the Army's attempt to stand up a similar force. They used officers from the Navy, who volunteered to serve in the Army, and constructed their own naval fleet for the Everglades. The Army would receive support from the Department of the Navy in the form of sailors and Marines to staff their vessels. Again, Marines participated in multiple patrols through the Everglades and attempted to hunt down the remaining Seminole warriors. By 1839, The experience of U.S. forces had increased to a point where Navy Lieutenant J.I. McLaughlin's confidence resulted in him presenting his plan for the Everglades. His plan was similar to Powell's, and suggested that flat-bottom boats be used to traverse the waterways, and canoes used for actual attacks. The two plans were remarkably similar, and despite a lack of evidence, some historians believe that Powell and McLaughlin might have worked together on this strategy. However, McLaughlin's plan emphasized the importance of amphibious warfare. He wanted to bring in a military force to provide quick and effective assaults against a nation without typical city defenses. The Seminole villages didn't have walls, artillery, or forts. They were fighting small groups of combatants that used hit and run tactics, and they needed a force that was able to compete with that type of strategy. He set up headquarters at Tea Table Key in the Florida Keys, and gathered his sailors and marines. His initial plan was to travel up one of the rivers flowing into the peninsula's west side. Every attempt by the Navy and Army to attack the Seminoles in the Everglades came from the east coast, so changing the direction of attack should confuse the Native Americans. The plan kicked off on April 10, 1840. Six days later, the U.S. sloop Otsego arrived, and the commander sent a detachment of 24 marines and sailors to scout the area. When they reached shore, they were attacked by a group of 50 to 80 Native Americans. The U.S. forces had no other option but to move into a defensive formation and fight back. The commotion caught the attention of the remaining U.S. military on shore, and they rushed to the marines and sailors' rescue. The battle lasted two and a half hours, and resulted in at least three seminal deaths. The Americans were fortunate and did not have anyone die during the skirmish. One of the most significant accomplishments during the U.S. force's time in the Everglades was mapping out the area. It was an extensive and difficult task to accomplish. Mangroves camouflaged the swamp's actual shoreline, the Everglades were covered with thousands of small, low-lying islands, and vegetation was thick which resulted in little light, and most of the swamp contained still water and was covered in slime. Every time it was disturbed, a strong smell would rise, causing everyone to gag. By the end of the summer, the Everglades' west side had been mapped, but there was little interaction with Native Americans. McLaughlin decided to focus on the Eastern Territory. While he started scouting new land, he received a report that a slave who the Seminoles previously captured, escaped and turned himself into the army. He claimed to be familiar with the Everglades, and volunteered to lead the army to the hidden Native American villages. However, the army didn't see the value in his proposal, and kept the man simply known as John locked up. McLaughlin had a different opinion. He struggled to find Native Americans in the Everglades, and having a guide was a valuable resource. McLaughlin set sail for Fort Dallas and met with John, who agreed to help lead the Navy into the Everglades. The expedition started on the Miami River and headed southwest. They headed north, through water that was one to four feet deep. Most of the journey involved men getting out of their boats and wading through thick sawgrass. According to McLaughlin, the temperature would occasionally reach 120 degrees. I was curious about McLaughlin's comment about the Everglades heat, so I looked it up. The hottest month in the Everglades is August, with an average temperature of around 92 degrees. With the humidity, the heat index feels like 109 to 110, which makes me think the 120 degree estimate by McLaughlin might have been exaggerated. But his point is made, it was pretty damn hot. The short scouting expedition didn't uncover any hidden Native Americans, but it did accomplish two things. One, John knew what he was talking about. And two, navigating to any location in the Everglades is possible. McLaughlin ordered the U.S. ship Wave to stop at T-Table Key to pick up every man at the hospital capable of fighting and head to the Everglades. Only six men were left at the hospital one of whom was midshipman Francis K. Murray. That night, Chakaika, leader of the Seminoles, led an attack on Indian Key, a mile from the hospital. In 28 canoes, the 140 Native Americans left the mainland and rowed 30 miles to the island. This attack was one of the most aggressive amphibious assaults of the war. It started at 2 in the morning and Native Americans slaughtered 13 people and burnt many buildings. Murray didn't have the resources to protect the island. He and his five men only carried two four-pounders, mounted on carriages designed for larger cannons, two barges, and a few volunteers made up of patients from the hospital. Murray planned to stop the Native Americans' retreat from the Keys until reinforcements arrived. He targeted the canoes. As Murray and his small force approached the beach, Native Americans got into position to prevent the destruction of their only escape. Chakaika managed to grab a six-pounder from the camp and fired at the U.S. naval forces, making this one of the rare, documented occasions where Native Americans used artillery during the battle. One sailor was critically injured during this attack, but the defense from the Native Americans did relatively little damage to the Americans. Murray attempted to return fire with his four-pounders, but the cannon's recoil caused them to fall overboard. With no artillery or a capable army, Murray retreated. He anticipated an attack from Native Americans and prepared tea table Key's defenses, but the Seminoles never attacked. They boarded their boats with their loot and headed back to the mainland. Navy leadership heard of this attack and they called the Marines. Around 60 sailors and marines filled canoes and headed towards Indian Key. On the trip, one of the canoes filled with marines flipped over. Crewmates rescued the men, but marines lost the canoe's weapons and equipment. When they arrived, Shakaika and his men were gone. McLaughlin ordered a retaliatory expedition, but unfortunately this excursion was cut short when the army recalled his guide back to jail. McLaughlin continued his mission with his Mosquito Fleet, and in 1841 presented a chart of the Everglades, showing the route of almost 5,000 miles through swamps. The mapping of the Everglades made navigation easier, but it was still a harsh battleground. When men returned from their mission, they were frequently described as broken down and barefooted, despite little engagement with Native Americans. Marine 2nd Lt. R.D. Taylor led a detachment of Marines into the Everglades, but they had to quit mid-March and return home due to a lack of fresh water. One of the Marines, Private Jeremiah Kingsbury, died on the trip due to exhaustion. Water levels were so low that they had to walk their canoes back through thick mud and stumps to reach their camp. McLaughlin later stated to the Secretary of War, quote, Service like this could not be of long continuance without a great sacrifice of men. Unquote. This naval operation would be one of the last of the war. By April 1841, U.S. forces were positioned throughout Florida, but there was little contact with Seminoles. The Seminole tribe was exhausted. They held a council to discuss the war against the United States, and they concluded that the only way out was to travel in small groups and rely on guerrilla tactics to fight against U.S. troops. However, they didn't have the supplies. When Seminole leaders made this decision, they only had five kegs of gunpowder. Colonel William J. Worth, commander of the Army in Florida, didn't see this war's value. He argued that the U.S. beat the Seminoles to a point where they were no longer a threat to the United States. He also argued that the remaining Native Americans should be allowed to live in the Everglades and U.S. forces sent home. On May 10, 1842, the Secretary of War, John C. Spencer, agreed with Wirth's conclusion and notified commanders that conflicts in Florida could end. On June 20, 1842, the Secretary of the Navy ordered the Florida Squadron disbanded and Marines and seamen of the command returned to Norfolk. On August 14th, the United States officially terminated the campaign against Native Americans in Florida. But despite the war with Native Americans ending in Florida, many Western states faced similar challenges. The responsibilities out West fell on the Army's shoulders again, and Marines rarely interacted with tribes from the West. During the American Civil War, Many army soldiers were sent east to take up arms against their brothers, but there was still a small force in the west. The United States and Native Americans had over 40 wars during the short time both nations lived in North America. But as the U.S. grew and citizens needed more land to support the growing population, Native American tribes lost more territory. The Apache War is a phenomenal piece of history, and I encourage you to look into it if you're interested in the American-Indian Wars. The last Apache raid happened in 1924, and it is the end of the American-Indian Wars. Since Europeans first set foot in North America, Native Americans were slaughtered and used for personal gain. As settlements turned into colonies, and colonies into a new nation, the U.S. killed tens of thousands of Native Americans in the war the American Indian Wars almost destroyed the Native American way of life. The total number of casualties isn't precisely known, but Colin Gillespie from Newcastle University calculated the number of casualties using the power law distribution and estimated Native American deaths from 1778 to 1890 to be around 60,000. The United States suffered around 12,000 casualties during that same time frame. The Marine Corps had eight deaths and one wounded during the Creek Seminole Wars. When the Indian Removal Act of 1830 was signed, it was very controversial. There was little opposition in the South, but many in Congress opposed this act. In 1868, President Grant attempted to reorganize the Indian service and relocated multiple tribes from their home to reservations. Again. This policy was controversial, and an investigation by Congress found rampant corruption in the federal agencies that were created to manage this policy. Many tribes resisted relocation, and the army had to step in to force their transfer. This policy would ultimately fail and cause some of the bloodiest wars between Native Americans and the United States. In 1887, Congress passed the Dawes Act, which gave the United States permission to break up tribal lands. This law intended to integrate Native Americans into U.S. society. The land was divided into plots and given to Native American families to be used for farmland. However, the United States sold over 90 of the 150 million acres of tribal land to U.S. citizens who were not Native Americans. In 1934, President Roosevelt signed into law the Indian Reorganization Act. This act aimed to reverse the United States' decision on how to treat Native Americans living in the United States. It gave back some of the land and mineral rights to Native American tribes, attempted to improve Native American reservations, and reversed some assimilationist policies and attempted to reestablish Native American traditional culture. This act is still used today. As the war headed west, the United States started to get into more land ownership conflicts. Large numbers of migrating Americans headed towards Texas during the 1830s, and they faced the Comanches. The Comanche were known as Lord of the Plains, and they were the most powerful nation in the area. They attacked Spanish settlers in the 1700s, Mexicans after they took Texas back from the Spanish, and eventually Americans who migrated to Texas in the 1830s. Comanches would frequently attack new settlements. There were few Mexicans in the area, and most of the territory was populated by Apache and Comanches. The Mexican government would periodically give land to migrating Americans in Texas, strictly to serve as a human barrier. They neglected to offer this piece of information when handing their land over, but Comanches would target the Americans instead of the Mexicans. At the time, Texas still belonged to Mexico. In 1835, a Mexican military commander in Texas heard about American colonists refusing to give back a small cannon that was given to the settlement in 1831 for defense against Native Americans. Mexico sent a force to retrieve the cannon, which gave birth to the historical slogan, Come and Take It. This kicked off the Texas Revolution with the Battle of Gonzales. The president of Mexico was Antonio López de Santa Anna, who won the election due to his support for federalism, but would ultimately turn out to be a dictator. He would later disarm militias, dissolve Congress, and repeal the Mexican Constitution. Most of Mexico would rebel against their new leader, but he was a cruel man, and his retaliation was ruthless. During the revolution, he allowed his men to slaughter civilians, loot property, and rape women. During the end of the revolution, Santa Ana and 1,800 soldiers faced off against a couple hundred at the Alamo. Santa Ana raised a red flag before the battle signifying that there would be no prisoners and everyone would die. Mexico slaughtered the Americans in the Alamo. Fourteen survived the attack. During the same month, he gathered 425 prisoners in the Battle of Goliad, killed them, piled up their bodies, and set them on fire. He assumed that the massacres in Goliad and the Alamo would have a devastating impact on morale. But Sam Houston used these horrendous acts to rally an army to defend against Santa Ana. During the Battle of San Jacinto, Houston and his army surprised Santa Ana and his men with an ambush. Mexicans tried to surrender, but with Goliad and the Alamos still fresh in so many mines, Texians refused to take prisoners and slaughtered the Mexican army. 650 Mexicans were killed during that battle compared to the 11 Texians. Santa Ana was found hiding, and the Texas army captured him. They kept him alive and forced him to negotiate. After three weeks, Mexico and Texas established the Treaties of Velasco. In April 1836, Texas won the war and became the Republic of Texas, an independent sovereign state, and Santa Ana would head back to Mexico. But despite having a signed treaty, Mexico didn't recognize Texas as an independent nation. Texas wanted to join the United States, but the U.S. hadn't decided if they wanted Texas, so it remained a sovereign nation for almost 10 years. On December 29, 1845, the U.S. formally accepted Texas in the Union as the 28th state. Mexico didn't take this news well they still considered Texas as their territory. While this was going on, President James K. Polk moved U.S. forces to Mexican territory to the west of Texas. This intensified tensions between the United States and Mexico. This tension would escalate into the Mexican-American War, and resulted in the Marines traveling to the halls of Montezuma. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll dig into the Mexican-American Wars. This is another important war for Marines, and will eventually lead to the Battle of Chapultepec. This battle is memorialized in the Marines' hymn with the line, From the Halls of Montezuma. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. Today's suggestion is, Can't Hurt Me, Master Your Mind and Defy the Odds by David Goggins. This is just a great book. David Goggins was a Navy SEAL, and this story goes into the challenges he faced on his journey. This book will motivate the hell out of you. I've read the book and listened to it on Audible, and the audio version is significantly better. Not only will you get the original story, but David Goggins chimes in with stories not found in the print version. Visit audibletrial.com slash History for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecore.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.